You won't need elbows in heaven. That's probably not going to make sense till towards the very end. That's okay. Don't try to decipher it yet. Okay. But I mentioned this morning that our message this morning, uh, self-contained as it is, is really only half of the message. And if you didn't come to the afternoon, you're going to miss a very important part. In fact, a vital component, the other side of the coin, if you will, to what we presented this morning. But... Like I said, so this morning we had a, a beginning of a thought, complete as it was, but it extends into what we're talking about this afternoon. That's going to make sense all in just a minute. But before we dive into any study of God's Word, let's quickly bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again we thank you for this day, for the Sabbath hours, and for the fellowship that we enjoy here on this Sabbath day in this place. And Lord, we want to not only study your Word to understand it, but we ask for a special blessing from on high that the truths that we learn, the principles that you teach may be put into practice in our lives. Teach us what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be like our Savior. So that in Lord bless us, keep us faithful, but more than mere faithfulness, Lord, help us to be useful for you too. For we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to break this down as simply as I possibly can, okay? That's my goal. And I want to open with this simple, straightforward thought. Being like Jesus means, you know, being like Jesus. Simple, radical thought. But if our goal is to be like Jesus, we should understand what Jesus was like and do our best to emulate being like Jesus. Okay, so being like Jesus, you know, means being like Jesus. And again, we saw this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, that is the character of God in the person of Jesus Christ through a study of his word, are being transformed into what? The same image from glory to glory. That was the burden of our study this morning, to start understanding what that means, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So as we look at the life of Jesus, as we study the Word of God, we ponder the law of God, we meditate on its standards, its principles, and see in contrast our life and our deficiency, we see a higher standard than where we will live, but we aim, maybe even step by step, slowly by slowly, to be more like what we see in Christ. And God, through that process, by the power of the Holy Spirit, transforms us into that same image so that when he comes, we will be, as the Bible says, like him, for we shall see him as he is. Very simple. But here's what I want to drive home this afternoon or this evening. Being like Jesus involves more than merely avoiding wickedness. Now, if we hear a message like, we heard today, like I presented today, that the, the law of God is the high standard and sin is the great problem. Christ came to show us what that law looked like, lived out, and he lived a life without sin. And only those who uh, do not practice lawlessness will go in. So as we watch Jesus, we want to become like him. We want to forego all those sins, avoid all those wicked traps that Satan has for us, stand under God's power against the temptations of Satan, and become like Jesus. And so a lot of times, the implication of today was explicit. The appeal was very clear. 
There may be some sinful things in your life, some lawless practices that do not conform to the society of God's kingdom. And so we need to put those aside through Christ's power and become more like Jesus who is without sin. Okay? And I think everything that we said today was true or I wouldn't have said it. Okay? But there is a danger in understanding righteousness is simply the avoidance of wickedness. Okay? Because you could become, you could leave today. That's why I begged you to come this afternoon. Those who didn't might be missing out. Saying, okay, there's God's standard sinlessness, and here I am with sinfulness. So what I'm going to do is one by one, just as by the Spirit of the Lord, start to walk away from those things. Say, all right, I'm not doing that. Cut that out. I'm not doing that. I'm going to cut that out. And you end up walking a path of life that simply is, be careful little eyes, be careful little ears, and just don't, 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 don't. And we subconsciously absorb a thought that says righteousness is simply not being bad. Right? And we start making lists. And praise God, we need, there are some things we should not do. <laughs> don't smoke, don't drink, don't swear, don't kill, don't fornicate, don't kill. Don't, I mean, we're going on a list of all the stuff we should not do, and we shouldn't do any of those things. But if righteousness in our minds only subsists of those things we're going to avoid, then we simply become the people who don't. Oh, you don't do that, and good. That's good, don't do that, don't do that. But end up just kind of inhabiting a space where the avoidance of evil is the epitome of righteousness. And there's something dreadfully wrong with that picture too. Because being like Jesus involves more than merely avoiding wickedness, though we should do that. Notice what, in Acts chapter 1, when a description of Jesus was given to people who had never met him before, this was the one sentence summary. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about avoiding evil. Is that what it says? <laughs> who went about doing what? Good. And healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I'm going to set this seed in your mind right now, and I'm going to say it over and over. God wants something more from you than merely being faithful. He wants to make you useful for his cause. Right? We need to go beyond mere faithfulness and say, all right, I'm, doing, I'm not doing that, so I'm just going to stay good. No, no, no. He wants you to do good. If you're going to be good, he wants you to do good. Jesus Christ, if you're going to be like him, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And what's fascinating is you go through a study of the life of Christ and you'll notice that every time Christ was questioned about his relation to the Father, his true identity, he gave his works as the evidence of the veracity of his claims. Good works were the evidence of Jesus' relation to God. Let's look at a few examples of this, okay? John chapter 10. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us how. Plainly. Jesus answered them. 
I told you. And you do not what? Believe. I was like, I can say it and say it and say it all you want, but that's not going to make you believe it. Then he says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Not just the stuff I claim, but the stuff that you see me do is evidence, right? He goes on later in the same conversation. Look what Jesus says, and this is a powerful statement. See if this applies to our Christian lives now. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. If Christ came simply to be holy, separate from sin but did not actively do the good the Lord needed him to do, he said, don't believe my connection to God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you don't believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus rested his entire ministry, the credibility of his claim to be divine, on the evidence of his works. Not just his claim and not just his fact that he didn't do bad things. He said, you review my life record and see the works that I do bear the stamp of God. This was to his doubters. John chapter 14 now, he's talking to his own disciples. And he has to say it again. He says, believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. It's like the work itself bears witness that my claim is true. Now, it's one thing to be questioned by the Jews who are out to get him, but here these are his disciples asking the questions. Are we sure you're it? And he says, look, you've been with me, you've heard every word I've said, but even if you don't believe my words, believe my works. Perhaps the one that had to sting the most was the doubt given him by John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist's entire ministry was to point people to Jesus, was to prepare the way to have a spiritual reformation so when the Messiah came, the path would be cleared, right? And he understood that. As soon as he saw Christ, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away to the sin of the world. He was, a, he was a, a, a staunch supporter of Jesus Christ. He saw the Holy Spirit descend on him. He heard the voice of God say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he even said, once people started going more to Jesus than to himself, he said, that's not a problem. I must decrease and he must increase. He clearly understood that Jesus was the fulfillment and culmination of his own ministry and that their time to pass the baton was there. Yet, even John the Baptist had a misunderstanding of what the mission of the Messiah was. He didn't expect him to be hanging out with sinners and doing these miracles and stuff. He wanted to see him be a political revolutionary, overthrow the government of Rome. And when he got locked up in prison and Jesus didn't come save him, yet all he heard about was Jesus was gallivanting with, you know, tax collectors and the like, some doubt started to creep into the mind of John the Baptist to such an extent that he sent a couple of his own followers to question Jesus about his claim to be the Messiah. Watch this now. Luke 7. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for what? Another. I have to imagine that he had to pierce the heart of Christ. 
When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? It's a very simple yes or no question. Are you the coming one? Yes or no? Simplest way Jesus could have answered that question, most direct, most succinct, was to simply say, yes. Oh, I'm sorry he's doubting. Go tell him yes. Well, think about it for a minute. Would that have made John feel better? Uh, maybe for a few minutes. You're like, oh, good. Whew. He said he is the Messiah. Nice. Good, good, good. I was doubting, but he said so. But wait a minute. Isn't yes the exact same thing a false Messiah would say? I mean, isn't that what a liar would say? You know, you never go up to a false prophet. Hey, you false prophet. Ah, you got me. <laughs> you couldn't have put me under that stressful situation by asking directly. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> so Jesus gets the approach. Are you the one? Guessing Jesus is like, well, I could say yes, but that's not going to help. So what does Jesus do in response? And that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. He didn't say a word at first. He hears the question, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus says, oh. And they follow him around for the rest of the day and witness the works of God done through him. And then watch what Jesus says. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. He didn't, just, he didn't say, go back and tell them what I said. Go back and tell him what you've seen. Because the works were the evidence that he was what he claimed to be. In much the same way, good works are the evidence of our relation to Jesus. If we claim to be like Christ, we had better be like Christ. Not merely avoiding evil, but doing good. John chapter 14, Jesus himself said it this way, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. So let's just pause and think about that right there, friends. If we claim to be like Jesus Christ, yet aren't preaching, teaching, or healing anybody, are we really being like Jesus? Especially when Jesus said, anybody who follows me is going to do the same stuff I do. In fact, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. He's like, your work is going to... Jesus Christ was just one individual doing this. But those who follow in his name are one and another and another and another. And that work is going to be broader spread and more widely known. He said, I'm just laying the template. You guys are going to carry forward that work in my name. So if they see a Christian, they better see an exact copy of the ministry of Christ. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Thus we come to James chapter 4 and verse 17. Therefore, 
to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. That means you can avoid using vulgar language, you can avoid committing adultery or fornication, you can avoid all the health infractions, you can avoid every bad thing and still come short of the glory of God. Because the glory of God is not revealed in a status condition, like in a monastery or convent somewhere where you just kind of like stare. The glory of God is revealed in what we do in the name of God. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Titus chapter 2 explains this way, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, there we go, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So clearly that's this morning's message. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for what? Good works. That when Christ takes you out of lawlessness and gives you faithfulness, he also expects from you usefulness. Right? That that is part and parcel. It's the other side of the coin. It's not just avoiding wickedness, but it's pursuing and being zealous for good works. Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Let's be clear. Neither this afternoon or this morning am I advocating at all that you work your way to heaven. Your works are not a cause of your salvation. Amen? They are, however, a condition of heavenly living. Okay? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for... Good works. Did you notice that? Not of works, but for works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a very important passage. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Do you catch that? Okay. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved to do good works. God fully expects that, that a people will be zealous for good works. Thus bringing the question, Luke chapter 18, verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the question is, what does faith look like? How can you spot it? Well, good works are the evidence of genuine faith. Are they not? That's kind of what the whole book of James is about, is it? Right? James 2, what does it profit my brother and if someone says he has faith but does not have works? It's a great question. If it's all just theory, if it's all just some idea that you ascribe to, but it don't actually do anything, what's it doing you? Can faith save him? Now this is where Martin Luther had a contention with James. He said, ah, James and Paul don't get along. James and Paul are brothers, Okay. They're right alongside each other. If a brother or sister, and he gives an illustration of what he's talking about. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, it's almost sarcastic. 
but you do not give them the things which are needy for the body, what does it profit? Someone is sitting there shivering cold on the edge of freezing. You're like, oh, God bless you. And then you leave. I mean, there's a statue of that right out on the front lawn here, right? James is saying, what kind of Christianity is that? Thus also, faith by itself, as an abstract concept, though I'm being faithful without being useful, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. That's not really... Any faithfulness that does not manifest in usefulness is not faithful. Right? This is what James is saying. He goes on, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works, as though you can separate the two apart. You have the head of the coin and I have the tail. You can't do that. He says, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. I will show faith by works. Works are the evidence of sincere faith. He says, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Remember we talked about this on opening night. You can be convinced of the truth. Do you think Satan knows Bible prophecy? Absolutely. He knows the word of God better than you or I do. He's the one who wants to twist it and turn it and go back. He knows intellectually the truth. And I am sure he's about conviction in his heart that he's wrong. But that doesn't save him because he hasn't yielded and changed, repented. But when the demons came up to Jesus, if you recall, they said, what are you doing here, you son of God? You know, all the Jews are like, I don't know, who is he? Is he, is he Moses? Is he Elijah? Who is it? Demons are like, that's Jesus, the Son of God. And they came and they said, have you come to torment us before the time? Do you think they know the time schedule of Bible prophecy? Absolutely. They're like, hey, 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 you're early. <laughs> and we trust your word, right? Man, I think that even Satan might even have more faith in the word of God than we do. Maybe a whole nother sermon, but James brought it up. <laughs> he said, even the demons believe. And what's their response? They tremble. They're on the wrong side of that, right? But he goes on to say, for as the body without the spirit is dead. Notice, by the way, the understanding of the truth about the state of the dead was so foundational that he's like, you know how body without spirit is dead? Just took it for granted that everyone understood that. So faith without works is dead also. If you have faith in God, but aren't working for God, you don't have faith in God. Period. Thus the great attendance passage, Hebrews chapter 10. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and what? Good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much, more, so much the more as you see the day approaching. The day being the day of the Lord's return. Clearly, just a quick aside, what is the purpose of coming to church and assembling ourselves together, especially as the Lord's coming draws nearer? To do what? To stir up love and good works 
and exhort one another. Apparently, we should come to church in order to inspire others and warm our zeal for doing good works in the name of the Lord. We should not come to church merely to receive a blessing, but we should come to be a blessing for others. Okay. I'll have a quick aside. I'm not going to have time to give this whole other sermon, so we'll just walk with me in a set of parentheses real quick. There's a whole message my, my, my good friends preach, and, and I'll tell you about it right now. It's called the Ministry of Attendance. There is a spiritual power to old-fashioned just showing up to stuff. Right? You put on a big social event at this game night tonight, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, this is not meant to be prophetic or anything. but You put all this time and advertisement and planning and all the food. I'm, I, is there food? I, if, there's no food. I, I don't know. But you know what I'm saying. You plan a thing. And you get all excited and you big, rent a big hall and three people show up. sucks the life right out of the room. Now, it's not because the event is bad, but it certainly says, oh, the people don't even care to come. The leadership didn't even come. What are we doing here? This happens at church after church after church. And apparently there's something special about, you know, the Sabbath is supposed to be a day of holy convocation to come together. And the purpose isn't, well, if they have good enough music, fine, I'll not. Or if the preacher's good enough, mercy. Or if the potluck is... The purpose of his going is to stir one another on so that we will be useful for God. Hasten his soon coming and see Jesus soon and very soon. That's the purpose. We're out of the parentheses. Back to the sentence now. Let's walk down this aisle. The fundamental difference between the government of Christ and the government of Satan is self. Okay, let's let's examine this a bit. Clearly, the great difference between Christ and Satan is Christ is the creator, Satan is the creation. And that is a universally large, irreparable gap, right? We understand that. But aside from the ontological distinction between Christ and Satan, the governmental, the philosophical framework that divides the two governments is Christ is based on a model of selflessness, where Satan is based on a model of selfishness. That's the only difference. That's the headwater that makes these two different streams. Christ, um, Satan is entirely selfish, where Christ is entirely selfless. And from these two, that one distinction comes two completely diametrically opposed forms of rulership of the universe. Self-interest versus self-sacrifice. Notice again the passages we read already and look at the difference in Christ from Satan. Speaking of Lucifer and his fall from heaven, how you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Where is his focus? On himself. Self-centered. Self, self. Now contrast that to what Paul urges believers in Christ to be like. He says, let nothing be done through what? Selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than himself. Put others first. 
Let each of you look not only toward his own interest, but also for the interests of others. And where did he come up with this radical concept? He goes in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also where? In Christ Jesus. He said, I'm just telling you how to live based on a template exemplified in Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now what's fascinating is Isaiah 14, he says, I will exalt, I will extend, I will be like the Most High. And the very next verse says, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. His goal was to self-aggrandize, up, 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 and the result is down. Christ, however, starts up And he's willing to go down, 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 humble and serve, even to the point of death. In the very next words, therefore, he's been given a name that is above every name. He's been exalted that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, right? So Christ being willing to go down results in being lifted up. Where Lucifer, his desire to go up results in him going down. It's fascinating. And this is the great distinction between the two philosophies. One is self-interest, the other is self-sacrifice. And Jesus summed it up as he always does in the simplest, most succinct form. Matthew 7, verse 12. Therefore, summing up the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. And then he adds this. Think about the significance of it. For this is the law and the prophets. Christ in one sentence, in one principle, said, I'm going to summarize the entire Old Testament. All the writings of Moses and all the prophets that came after him. Here's what they were all trying to teach. Do for others. Any questions? That was it. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. That is the foundational principle of heaven. And if our only goal is to get into heaven and say, fine, I'm going to, I'm going to cut things out of my life and stand here and stand still, you haven't become like Jesus. Because to a certain extent, that's still merely self-interest. Right? Christ says there's more than merely avoiding wickedness. You need a lifestyle. You need a character that gives to others. Just like you would like to do if they were to do for you. Story is told of an artist commissioned to make two paintings, one of heaven and one of hell. He was a good artist. He was well-known. I'm sure paid very well. But he was a little confused by the request. He said, what do you mean? He said, I just want you, I want you to put into two different paintings an illustration, one representing heaven and one representing hell. 
I want to teach the world about the two options, you know, one in heaven, one hell. And I want you to do it. Go. And he takes his time. He doesn't say, man, I don't, I don't know. Never drawn heaven. I certainly never drawn hell. I don't know. He thinks and he thinks and he studies and he studies. And it's like, I got it. Here it is. And he goes to work. The first painting is heaven. And it's exactly like the felts you grow up with. I mean, lush green rolling with the just perfectly blue sky. All the animals are tame and curious. It's an idyllic setting. And in the middle, right down the middle of the painting is this massive, miles-long table filled with the most lush, just delectable, scrumptious, vegan, (laughs) (laughs) delights that heaven can offer. Just, mm. good, good, good. I mean, it was haystacks. (laughs) I mean, it, it was all of it, man. And around the table, he put people. That's heaven. People sitting at a table eating. Pretty good picture. In hell, he says, all right, how am I going to show the contrast? In hell, he's like, here's what to do. And he draws the exact same environment. Green, rolling, verdure everywhere, you know, lush, just animals, and the, the sky is blue, and there's just... A, and right down the middle, this long, miles-long table, piled high with every delectable, delicious, wonderful, scrumptious, delightful thing you could possibly want to eat. And around this table, he put people. To this point, the two paintings are identical. In heaven, however, well, we'll come back. Still in hell here, Jesus says, you know what? Here's the difference, though. The people in hell who were sitting around the table were grumpy and sour, sick, frail, weak, little emaciated, shrunken, (laughs) like gargoyles, sitting around, just looking at the food all, it's a deep theological term, he said, that's hell. Other picture, people are sitting around the table, fat and happy. Just mm, loving it. And if you look closely at the painting, you'll notice that he did something. In both groups of people, he gave the exact same physical deformity. None of them in either painting had functional elbows. They had no joint in their arm. They had shoulders, right? And they had wrists. And they have digits. Feel free to act it out if you need to. (laughs) They can do this action right here, right? And in hell, they're like, yeah, woo! And they went and grabbed the food, and they were like... (laughs) And for a minute, it got real sloppy. (laughs) And they just worked themselves into a 
frustrated frenzy. And they're just like, Ugh. And they just sat there and wasted away. Because there's all this food and they can't eat it. In heaven, everybody had the same problem. No elbows. They got shoulders. They got wrists. They got fingers. That's it. But they didn't miss a beat, right? <laughs> In heaven, the only way to eat, you just got to go like this. <laughs> Somebody's like, I'm on it. Got him. <laughs> mm. It's good. It's good. Have you noticed something about the Ten Commandments? The first four are duties to God. The next four, are, the next six, sorry, I didn't. <laughs> it's like, that's heresy, right? The last six are duty to man. But there is no commandment that says, watch out for yourself. There's none that says, look out for number one. You watch for you, you know? No, it never says that. It says don't steal the other guy. It doesn't say lock your stuff down. It just says don't steal his stuff. Right? It says it doesn't defend, just don't offend. You take care of them. And the question is, well, who's going to take care of me? They are. Because there's the principle of selflessness in the kingdom of God that needs to begin here in this earth among the people who profess to be God's people. Imagine what a society that actually kept the Ten Commandments would look like. Everybody gets Sabbath off. Nice. That'd be good. Every parent is properly honored. Right? Nobody kills. Nobody. Just, everybody just keeps living. They don't even kill themselves slowly over time, you know, with bad habits. They just live. No divorce rate. None. Every marriage is intact. Every couple is happy. Nobody steals a thing. Padlock makers take a hit, you know. <laughs> There's no locks on the doors. Nobody even wants other people's stuff, right? By the way, nobody lies. Does this make me look? Yep. <laughs> we can come back to a whole sermon on that. <laughs> but imagine where God's law was actually written on people's heart and we just lived it like Jesus did. Our life wouldn't be bound up in self-interest our number one priority is making sure you were taken care of. And that's how heaven will operate. It's very simple. Look at this. In heavenly places, page 233. In heaven, none will think of self, nor seek their own pleasure. Pause right there. Isn't that the only thing we pretty much ever said heaven was all about? Now, that's not to say that heaven won't be pleasurable. It's just not going to come from me seeking it for me. Listen to it. In heaven, none will think of self, none, none, nor seek their own pleasure, but all from pure, genuine love will seek the happiness of the heavenly beings around them. And I love this line. If we wish to enjoy heavenly society and the earth made new, we must be governed by heavenly principles here. 
How simple. Whatever you wish someone would do for you, go do it for them. Can you imagine what it was like to be Jesus Christ? Man, there's a blind guy. You know, I'd hate to be blind. Let me go fix that for him. This guy can't even walk. Let me help. Poor lady, let, let me give her a hand. And all the apostle can say was, there was Jesus Christ who went about doing good for God was with him. Wouldn't that be a great testimony? I know that we're not supposed to, and I'm not asking you to do this at all, but have like a checklist for when you've arrived at Christian attainment. You know? But listen to this simple premise. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. You know you become like Christ when you've become just like Christ. It's that simple. And you would think the completeness of Christian character is attained when you deny yourself all those other... Now, of course you should deny yourself wickedness. But that's only the other side of the coin. But to really know that it's come to fruition is not only you put those things away, but now you're seeking others' betterment. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. You've made decisions about helping others that have become habits, that have become a lifestyle, and then it just goes from what you do to actually who you are. You're not someone who takes, you're someone who gives. You reflect the character of Christ in everything that you do. And you probably won't even notice it in yourself, but I guarantee others will. Which brings me to this. Matthew chapter 25. It's a longer passage, and I'm going to read it directly from the Bible. It'll be on the screen, at least in part. But when Jesus speaks of his own return, remember the question, will he find faith on the earth? And the answer is, he will. And what will that look like? Matthew chapter 25, starting with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered together before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. But remember, He's already made the verdict in heaven before He returns, right? Now He's just sorting out. 33. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, and he's gonna, here's the reason why, verse 35. For, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. We're just going to read right through. Look at verse 37 now. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. 
Then he turns to the wicked, verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Please note that the everlasting fire is not prepared for you. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. Any of us who go there, that's our choice. But he explains why this sentence has come down. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And what really got my attention is verse 44. Then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you? I don't know if you caught that, but both the righteous and the wicked, word for word, the same response to Jesus' verdict. Lord, when did we see you? Hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison did not minister to you. Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice this, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And then they, the wicked, will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? Both the righteous and the wicked respond to Christ with the exact same question, Lord, when did we see you? Now I have to imagine the only difference is in the tone of voice, is in the inflection. When the wicked ask the question, Lord, when did we see you? They say, Lord, well, when did we see you? As if to say, if we'd have known it was you, <laughs> sure, we'd have, we'd have invited you to potluck. <laughs> we'd have worked at community service center. We would have done prison ministry. We would have fed the people. We would have given more Bible studies to the poor who didn't know. We would have done whatever it took. We would have done a clothing drive, a canned food drive. We would have done an in-gathering, Lord. If we'd have known it was you, sure, because you can get us in. But it wasn't you. It was just, you know, people. These people are fully expecting to get into heaven. But in this life, they have not developed a character that would fit into heaven. Now, on the other side, the righteous, right? Lord, when did we see you? I mean, we're not complaining. We're coming in. <laughs> but I, seriously, I just don't recall ever. When did we see you? Hungry or thirsty or sick in prison? And I, we never saw you. We just saw people. You know, and that's just what we do when we see people. He's like, that's my point. You didn't know it was me, and you did it anyway. You fit in. Come on in. The great philosophical divide between Christ and Satan is Christ is entirely selfless, where Satan is entirely selfish. And in this life, by the, by the sins we choose to do or the righteousness we choose not to do, or vice versa, we are becoming step by step more like Jesus or more like his enemy. So that when we come in, we might even say word for word the same question to Christ, but we mean entirely different things. Lord, when did we see you? 
So, friends, I want to make a strong appeal to you today. And I'm not going to ask you to come down front, but I want you to start thinking right now. Is my relationship with Christ, even if it's a committed one, is it still based on self-interest just trying to get me in? Or am I ready to go beyond mere faithfulness and be put to usefulness for Christ? Say, Lord, I want your character to come out of me. Not just by what I don't do, but I want it to be revealed in my works. Not that my works are saving me. By the way, your good works were never intended to save you, but they are intended to save somebody else. Are you hearing me? Your good works were never meant to save you, but they were exactly what God wants to use to save somebody else. Friends, if you've come to a relationship with Christ, praise the Lord. Now there's somebody else that needs your help. All of this next week, that's what we're going to be talking about. What is my role in God's people today? What is my job in the church? And I'll just tell you right away, I think we've developed a very dangerous precedent where church is 100 people watching one guy work instead of one guy putting 100 people to work for Jesus. We need a revolution in the Seventh-day Adventist church today. We need a raising up of lay members who individually will have a connection with Christ that will be faithful to his word and useful for his cause. And we need it to begin right here, right now. Let me ask you a question. Has today's presentation made sense? Praise God for that. I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to your heart and start saying, Lord, not only what do I need to cut out of my life, but what do I need to start doing to more accurately reflect your character of selflessness to this world? What would a life of usefulness look like? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you've called us to a life of faithfulness. But not only that, that you've decided to use us for your glory as well. Lord, help our righteousness that comes only from you, of course, not limited only to what we take out of our lives, the wickedness we want to avoid, and praise God for promising the victory over those things. But more than mere avoidance of wickedness, Lord, help us to pursue righteousness. Help us to be active agents, not just passive watchers, but help us to be active workers for your cause. Lord, I would pray that as we go through the next week, that we'll see from your word a mandate that every member of your church on the earth is to be a worker and a hastener of the soon coming of Jesus. Lord, keep us faithful, yes, but make us useful for you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.